Welcome everybody. Today is Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, June the 7th. And on Tuesdays, we have uh, Mr. Dwoskin presenting his In the Headlines exercise. So Mr. Dwoskin, the floor is yours. Thank you, Angela. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, well, I'm so happy to be back with you again after a uh, short break, a Passover break and uh, a holiday break. Um, we just got back from a three week trip uh, in Europe, in Italy and Greece. And um, uh, I'm happy to report that those countries are still alive and working. And, you know, uh, tourism, which is so important to many, many countries in the world is definitely going in, um, uh, I would say maybe somewhere like 75 or 80% of what it uh, usually goes. So that's a pretty good number. And everyone is just so happy to see uh, tourists around. Um, you know, they haven't gotten tired of us yet. Uh, the weather in, 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 um, in Southern Europe now is just beautiful, like 27 degrees. So it was just altogether all nice to be going away and, uh, and you know, seeing the world again. Um, lots and lots and lots of things have happened, of course, in the last uh, two or two and a half months since uh, I spoke to you last. Um, I would say uh, one of the more surprising things concerns the ongoing war in the Ukraine, which is past its hundredth day. So it's been three months plus the, since the Russian invasion. And um, despite overwhelmingly, uh, uh, overwhelming odds and the mismatch of forces, uh, the Russians have not uh, succeeded in overrunning the country as they sort of expected to do in a week's time. And uh, the consequence of that is that um, the whole campaign has been such an embarrassment to um, the leadership that they don't see any way out except to continue uh, going on rather than admitting defeat and, and, and sort of going back to where they were. Uh, but the war obviously has a cost and a huge cost to both sides and to the world, uh, which we'll get into. So that's really one of the, you know, the key driving points, I guess, of world events is that war. Um, partly associated with that, which is what I'd like to speak about today a little bit more, is about the, the worldwide inflation, which is carrying on now. And um, I happened to be, uh, of course, since I was gone for three weeks, we had to go to Costco and, and sort of fill up our fridge. And uh, I noticed that the coffee uh, brand, which I buy, the Costco normal coffee, which is a three pound can for, used to cost $10 at $3 a pound. And then they raised it to $4 a pound of $12. And all of a sudden yesterday it was $21. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. It's like a $7 a pound from $4 a pound, which is, you know, like more than a 50% increase in price. And needless to say, coming back to look at the gasoline prices at uh, $2.23 a liter uh, is really kind of shocking when you're used to uh, prices in the $1.30, $1.40 range. In Europe, by the way, the price in, 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 in Italy was somewhere around a dollar. 1.9 euros to the liter. And in Greece, it was even higher. It was something like 2.6 uh, or 2.7 euros to the liter, which, you know, translated into our money, 
uh, roughly, uh, you know, to be rough, you'd say maybe a, a one and a half dollars to the euro. Uh, you can do the math and see that it comes out to uh, somewhere close to four, four Canadian dollars a, a liter, uh, which is, you know, uh, almost double what we're paying or three and a half. Canadian dollars a liter to be more exact. So, um, you know, we're not the only one uh, facing this issue. It's a worldwide issue. Uh, some countries suffer, of course, more than others, but it's the other major, um, uh, I would say, uh, crisis issue. Uh, and it's an issue which is affecting politics around the world. So in other words, the war in Ukraine per se, affects mostly the two uh, fighting countries and all the ones around them. But the issue of inflation is one which is affecting the whole world and specifically affecting the U.S. Um, for the upcoming November elections in the midterms and uh, affecting any country which is going through national elections, uh, you know, in this in this in this term. And uh, it has, uh, you know, wide-ranging consequences. Um, so that's, uh, those are, you know, I'd like to sort of start speaking about these subjects now. And uh, then uh, hopefully if we have time, I'd like to speak a little bit about the Jewish communities in uh, the Greek uh, cities that we visited, which were, uh, you know, quite, uh, uh, have such an interesting story to tell. So um, the, um, the uh, most immediate effect of this um, war in, uh, in between Russia and Ukraine is the rise in the price of oil and gas. Uh, and, gas. Um, and that's because Russia uh, produces so much uh, oil and gas. It, it's the, um, one of the world's largest exporters of oil and gas. And since the world has decided in some way or other to boycott these products, uh, it leaves a big hole in the world market. And therefore the demand is greater than the supply and the price has to go up. And it, it go, go up it has. So uh, oil has gone from um, uh, somewhere around $60 a barrel for crude oil to uh, you know, uh, $120 a barrel. And you know, that's a 50% jump in a relatively short time. And um, obviously uh, the price of crude has a lot to do with the price of refined gasoline. And so that's why prices have gone up so much. Um, not only that, but even more specifically, uh, Russia not only exports um, uh, raw oil and raw natural gas, but exports a lot of uh, refined product. So a lot of refined product means sort of gasoline, ethylene, benzene, jet fuel, um, all kinds of refined product, which um, if now it is off the market, uh, you need a place to refine the crude oil to make those products that, was, that were being imported from Russia. So in other words, um, uh, uh, even if there's enough oil around, uh, there isn't enough refinery capacity to refine the oil into usable products, which Russia was exporting to the world up until now. Just to give you some notion, the last 
oil refinery built in the U.S. was built in the 1970s. So you're now talking, you know, it's 50 years since they built an oil refinery in the country. And in the meantime, of course, the demand for um, uh, gasoline and other products uh, has gone up hugely as the number of people living in the country go, goes up, as the number of cars in the country go up, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a mismatch between the supply and demand of refined uh, products, and that leads to an even greater increase than the difference in the, in the crude oil price. Um, uh, other products which were produced by Russia and uh, the Ukraine include uh, fertilizer, where, whose price has gone up tremendously in the last little while. Although I was just reading today that in North America, the prices may, may have just started to come down a little bit. But fertilizer is made in the main from uh, natural gas. Well, it has two sources. You can make it, you can mine it directly as phosphates, as we do in Canada and in Morocco. Or uh, you can make it into a, a sort of an ammonium and nitrogen type uh, product, which you make out of natural gas. And um, Russia and the Belarus are making it out of natural gas and supplying fertilizer to the whole, uh, the whole um, let's say, Asia, Africa, Europe uh, continents. And uh, since those supplies have been cut off, the price of fertilizer has gone crazy. Um, and there isn't a, uh, again, like anything else that's in short supply, the long run, you are able to increase production in other ways, but in the short run, you can't. So therefore the prices go up and the, the countries affected the most are the poorest countries in the world who need fertilizer to grow food for themselves. So this would be Africa, North Africa, the Middle Eastern countries, etc. Um, the other great shortage caused in the world and the other prices going up are in food products. So um, Russia and Ukraine are the two uh, biggest suppliers of wheat to the foreign market, uh, as well as cooking oil. You, the Ukraine is the biggest producer of sunflower oil. And uh, since these products have been cut off by the war, uh, prices of uh, cooking oils and of uh, wheat have gone up uh, also exponentially. Countries which import these products, of course, are affected the most. And that includes uh, countries in the Middle East and North Africa, whose basic diet is bread, pita, bread, uh, made out of wheat. And um, uh, not only that, but these countries subsidize the price of wheat, of bread, because they want their populations to be happy. And therefore it's costing the treasuries of these countries huge amounts of money to keep on these subsidies uh, after the price of wheat has gone up so much. So they are gonna be facing a crisis very soon. And uh, when the um, uh, uh, cooking oil shortage developed and prices started to go up, other countries in the world which produce cooking oil, namely Indonesia and Malaysia, who are the biggest producers of palm oil, uh, when the palm oil prices went up, uh, their, um, their citizens were complaining like, why are we shipping palm oil all around the world when the prices are going up for ourselves? And both countries announced a, a temporary 
stoppage of shipping of palm oil abroad. Now, you know, for anyone who's ever eaten a kind of a Ritz cracker or, or, or you know, any of those uh, kind of uh, cheap confectionaries, uh, palm oil is the main ingredient. And um, of course, prices are going to go up because of the shortage of that product, hopefully a temporary shortage. Um, the other effect of this war has been, uh, as you uh, might have heard, to um, unite Europe in a kind of a coalition against Russia. So, you know, with the exception of one or two countries like Serbia, especially, and perhaps Hungary, uh, the rest of Europe is completely united and on the side of the Ukraine. Uh, they're all willing to give help and are giving help to Ukraine in one way or another. Uh, some, of, some of them are supplying arms to the Ukraine. Some of them are supplying um, uh, non uh, lethal weapons like you know train cars to transport uh, supplies. Um, so of course many of them are receiving Ukrainian refugees. And uh, in a way sort of the most ironic uh, move of all was the announcement of Sweden and Finland that they want to join NATO after, after think of it. And NATO was formed around 1947. So we're talking here 53, 63, 70, 75 years since NATO was formed. Um, and Sweden and Finland could have joined when NATO was formed at the beginning uh, because they were democratic countries and they were kind of wary of, of the Soviet expansion. But they decided to stay neutral in order not to um, cause problems uh, between the Soviet Union and themselves. So this invasion of Europe in, in, in two seconds caused Finland and Sweden to apply to join NATO. So. The, the action that Putin took to prevent uh, the Ukraine from sliding westward has ended up causing Sweden and Finland, um, you know, much stronger countries in a way than Ukraine to definitely go to the West and to apply to join NATO. So, you know, his, his goals in the short term have not been accomplished. His goals in the long term have not been accomplished. And it's just been a, a big mess as far as Russia is concerned. Um, uh, I, um, the, the past two weeks, um, I was on a cruise in the Mediterranean, but uh, everyone was talking about cruises in the Baltic. And previously, the cruise ships always stopped in St. Petersburg for two days. And uh, now they've completely stopped going to Russia altogether, including St. Petersburg. And so, you know, this city is losing out on thousands and hundreds of thousands of visitors who would normally come to visit and spend their hard-earned money uh, in the city. So uh, it's definitely had an effect in that way. Um, uh, the world in general has united against uh, Russia, not just European countries, but, you know, many... Uh, many other countries have, with the notable exceptions of, of uh, China and India, um, who've uh, decided to kind of take advantage of the Russia's weakness and to exploit um, Russia for all the products that it sends to those countries and get good prices from them. Um, Turkey is also playing a role now in this whole issue because since Turkey is part of NATO, uh, any new entrance to NATO has to be approved unanimously. 
And Turkey is saying they don't want to approve the uh, joining of Sweden and Finland because those two countries have hosted um, Turkish dissidents, uh, Turkish political dissidents, um, especially people associated with the Kurdish nationalist movement. So what Turkey is saying uh, to start with as well, you know, uh, you know extradite, extradite the people that we want and we will approve your, your um, you know, your application. Or, or, you know, Turkey is pressing for other uh, economic considerations uh, at the same time. So we'll see how that all works out. But in the end of end of things, I'm sure that if NATO uh, wants Sweden and Finland and Sweden and Finland want NATO, that they will be able to join. Um, the, um, the, all of this unrest and shortages and pressures have been to blame for causing inflation. So inflation is a kind of a rapid increase of prices. That's sort of what it means. An increase of prices, which is obtained without an increase in productivity. And that's really the definition of inflation. Um, the political consequences are very strong. So uh, when people vote, the first thing they think about is their pocketbooks. And um, if the perception is that they are fighting a losing battle, that their standard of living is going down because prices are going up, because they can no longer afford things that they used to afford, then this is a very bad message for the incumbent leaders in in the various countries experiencing this inflation. Um, and in particular, and we have seen this before, uh, when oil prices go up very quickly as they did in the mid seventies, this caused a huge wave of inflation um, in the world, uh, which lasted pretty well uh, almost 10 years because oil is an input for so many things uh, that we buy. So it's, you know, not only, as I said, it's not only used oil and gas to make millions of different products, including all kinds of plastics, um, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, you, you know, medicine and, 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 and it's an input in, in, in making tires and everything else. But uh, since everything has to be shipped either by, by air or by ship or by car or by truck, um, the increased price of gasoline and diesel is an input into everything else. So everything else goes up just because the cost of transportation has gone up so much. Now, uh, since countries realize and politicians realize that inflation is, is in a sense uh, such an enemy, what are they doing to fight it? What are they doing to reduce the rate of increase uh, in the cost of goods? So there's many different strategies that are being used and I'll talk about some of them now. Um, but we have to remember that uh, fighting inflation is a little bit like trying to stop a ship uh, in motion. And I was on one for two weeks, so I know how, how hard it is to stop. Uh, you can't just press the brake and stop a ship. In the same way, you can't just pass a few, uh, uh, regulations or make some some political changes and stop inflation from happening. It doesn't work that way. It, 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 it's a much slower process. You can't do it all at once. Uh, in essence, in essence, I mean, the explanation uh, is kind of simple. 
that in order to stop prices from going up, you either have to reduce demand, uh, not either or, but you have to both reduce demand for something and increase supply of something. So if you reduce the demand and increase the supply, then uh, things will balance out and prices will start to go down. Reducing demand is uh, one of the sort of um, keystones to this strategy. And uh, reducing demand is done by increasing the cost of something. So obviously, if something costs more, you're going to buy less of it. And if you buy less of it, you're reducing demand. Um, but if you just increase costs right away, and if the expectation is that costs will increase even more in the future, then you have the opposite effect. In other words, people will start buying things, even buying things they don't need, because they fear that the prices of those things will go up more in the future. Now, this is kind of called hoarding uh, or speculative buying. And that leads to even more inflation because in the short term, uh, the demand for those goods increases even faster because of the fear of future price increases. And then th that action causes actual prices to go up. So um, inflation is not only a kind of rooted in the reality of supply and demand, it's also rooted in the expectation of what the future is gonna be. Uh, and of course, vice versa. If, price, if people think prices are gonna going down, they'll say, well, why should I buy anything now if prices are gonna be cheaper in a month from now? Maybe I won't buy anything now and wait for prices to go down. And if everybody does the same thing, that lack of demand causes actual prices to go down. So the, this sort of cycle or vicious cycle works in both directions. Um, uh, to stop uh, that sort of uh, sort of uh, cascading uh, snowball, you have to convince people that prices uh, in the sense of inflation are going to come down um, and uh, not to make any sort of purchases that they wouldn't normally be making. The first big tool to do this in the government's hands is to control interest rates. So the Bank of Canada, the United States Federal Reserve, other, other countries, they all have national banks which set interest rates. And by raising, uh, raising interest rates, which the Bank of Canada has already done once with a half point raise, and the US has done the same. And Australia just announced a big increase this week. In fact, today, I think it was. So um, raising interest rates uh, leads to um, raising the costs of things bought with borrowed money. So if you have to pay more for money because interest rates are higher, therefore your costs of the final good is higher and therefore you will buy less of it because it costs more. Uh, things which uh, people normally borrow money for would be to buy houses, cars, major appliances, second homes, boats, uh, um, you know, all kinds of expensive things and even less expensive things if you uh, are paying with a credit card and you can't afford to, to pay it all off, then you're paying more because your interest rates and carrying charges are gonna be higher on your credit card. So uh, obviously this leads to less demand and less demand leads to slowing price increases. Uh, I was just reading that in Toronto, house prices have fallen now for three months in a row. 
which is a good sign because they've been going up so much uh, lately. And, um, and uh, you know, as I said, the, the cycle can move in the other direction. If people think prices will go down even more, they'll wait before they buy something, which will cause prices to go down even more. Um, the uh, psychology of expectation sometimes counts even more than the reality that's on the ground. Um, but, but raising interest rates is a very kind of a crude tool because there's no way to kind of control it or refine it. If you raise interest rates too quickly, it slows demand so much that the economy can slow down. Um, then also, of course, uh, it's not only consumers that borrow money, it's also producers that borrow money. Uh, companies need um, to borrow money uh, for expanding their businesses, for research and development, for buying new machinery, for buying new processes, for, for um, let's say, researching new markets. Um, you know, every single company, even the big ones, uh, borrow money for all these different things. And if the cost of money is so high, they will stop borrowing uh, or they'll borrow less. And therefore, the, uh, the possibility of increasing their businesses and making the economy grow, paying more taxes, employing more people, all these things will go down if the cost of borrowing money is too high. So there is a kind of a fine line between stopping the psychology of inflation on the one hand and preventing, um, preventing businesses from uh, you know, accessing capital so that they could grow their businesses on the other hand. Um, uh, the, uh, the other consequence of raising interest rates is that um, it sucks in money or it attracts money, it attracts investments from outside um, to buy the government bonds or other sort of treasury paper that uh, exists in the country that pays higher rates than they used to. So the effect of that is that in general, sometimes the, uh, there is a kind of an inverse relationship between higher interest rates and prices of the stock market. So people, if they have high safe returns that are guaranteed, why would they want to invest in the stock market where uh, there's always much more risk? And therefore the stock market has fallen and tends to fall in these situations. And we already know that, and I just checked today that um, the stock market is roughly down by almost 50% from the highest it ever was. So uh, that's really quite a drop. Um, and, um, uh, when stock prices are down, it has an economic effect because companies which want to expand, which want to raise money, uh, they will often go to the stock market and sell parts of themselves in order to have that money for, you know, buy for, let's say, opening a new mine, for opening new stores, for developing a new product. And if the prices of stock are so low, the companies will say, well, it's not worth it for us to raise money by selling ourselves or part of ourselves. We just won't do the expansion. We won't open the mine. We won't open the stores. Um, you know, we won't uh, produce some kind of a new uh, 
article or a new app or, 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 you know, anything in the IT world. And, you know, this leads to a slowdown in the economy. Um, uh, so uh, the, um, uh, the, the indirect, the indirect uh, consequences of a falling stock market, so the direct ones uh, we just mentioned, the indirect ones are that if people in general have less money or they feel they have less money, um, they won't spend as much. Uh, they won't have the confidence to invest in general. Um, uh, they will, uh, you know, buy less because they, they're less well off. And then that also reduces demand and, um, you know, leads to less inflation in the long run. Um, the, uh, the other effect of raising interest rates, um, especially if this is done, uh, let's say, um, not all at the same time in the whole world, is that it, it attracts that same money that I was just talking about that comes into the country to, to uh, buy up um, uh, paper, in other words, to buy up uh, bonds or to buy treasury notes or to buy other kinds of paper with a guaranteed high rate of interest, is that the currency goes up in those countries which raise their interest rates because people first have to convert their money into local money, and then that local money buys the bonds. So if a country raises their interest rates particularly quicker than everyone else, there will be a flow of money into that country and that will raise the value of the currency of that country. Now, raising the value of the currency of a country, of course, has two opposite effects. It, it means that um, exporters from that country find it harder to export their products because it costs more. Uh, whereas importers find it uh, cheaper to import products because they cost less. And, uh, you know, that has been the effect of um, changes in, in values of currencies. Now, if I asked you in the last year, the which country's currency has gone up the most against the US dollar? Uh, by a huge amount, it's gone up by 25% as of I just checked uh, as of uh, two days ago. So uh, which country do you think has had the best result the, uh, or the highest increase of the value of its currency against the US dollar, which is of course a worldwide standard against which other currencies are measured? So the answer, believe it or not, is da -da -da, Russia. So Russia's currency is now worth, and I just checked, it was 59 rubles to the dollar. When the war broke out, it was at 75 rubles to the dollar. The, the shock of the war led the, to a drop of the value of the currency all the way up to 130 rubles to the dollar. But then what Russia did was they doubled their interest rate practically overnight. So uh, by doubling the interest rate, not like going up by half a point like we've done, but by doubling the interest rate from roughly 10% to 20%, it meant that a huge amount of investors wanted to buy Russian rubles in order to earn that 20% interest. The other thing, of course, that happened is that the price of oil and gas went up so much that even though Russia was boycotted by the rest of Europe, uh, still they still have lots of oil and gas for sale. And other buyers came in to buy that oil and gas, even at a 
discount from the world oil price. And, you know, uh, boycotts are only as good as the sort of paper they're written on. And um, in one way or another, um, you know, a commodity like oil is not identifiable. It's not like you're selling uh, Russian dolls. Uh, you know, oil is oil and gas is gas. And it kind of leaks out to through third parties. It's mixed with other oil and gas. And before you know it, you have no clue where this oil and gas came from. And, um, you know, countries like India and China are huge consumers of, uh, you know, crude oil. And they've been buying loads of this product from Russia uh, at a discount. And they might even be buying more than they need and then sort of sh shipping off the rest of it to other countries who normally would import directly from Russia. So all of these sales of these high priced uh, assets have led to a huge inflow of money into Russia. And therefore the value of their currency has gone up so high to even higher than it was before the war started. So it just goes to show somehow you think, uh, you don't think of things that, like this could happen, but in fact they did. And, um, you know, at the point where the Russian ruble dropped to, to record lows, everyone was saying, well, look, uh, Russia is now paying for their sin of invading the Ukraine. But now that their ruble is worth uh, way more than it was at the beginning of the war, I wonder what people are saying now. Um, so, uh, you know, that's the, the story about, uh, you know, uh, how quickly values of currencies can change. By the way, the U.S. and Canadian, the Canadian dollar versus the U.S. has been very stable. It's been stable for a long, long, long time at somewhere just below uh, 80 cents U.S. to buy a Canadian dollar. And that amount has been pretty constant, um, uh, I'd say, over the last many, many years. And I think this is something that the Canadian government wants um, because it puts Canada's economy at a competitive advantage uh, to the U.S. And um, it allows exports of Canadian products to the U.S., which cost cheaper in U.S. dollars. So, you know, that, that has been a pretty strong constant in the world and the changing world of economics. Um, um, let me just see what else I've got written down here. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. Um, now, another way to, so we talked about different strategies of fighting inflation. We talked about uh, increasing interest rates, which would therefore increase prices and lower supply. The other way, of course, is to increase demand, to increase supply. In other words, um, if there's more of something out on the market, it's gonna end up costing less in the long run. And uh, Biden, who sees his political fortunes really tied to the struggle against inflation, has spent pretty well uh, much of his energy on trying to uh, reduce the uh, cost of goods in the US. You might remember that as soon as the gas prices went up, he released millions of barrels of gas from the Federal Reserve. So the United States holds in tanks all around the country, a lots of spare or extra um, fuel, gasoline, gas, uh, in order to, let's say, deal with an emergency if for some reason or other um, 
pipelines are shut down, if some reason or other supply is shut down uh, through a natural catastrophe or a war, uh, then the US will always have a cushion of supply uh, sitting around uh, waiting for an emergency. Well, uh, Mr. Biden decided to release some of the supply in order to create uh, extra supply in the marketplace and then therefore reduce demand. Uh, and he did release millions of gallons of, uh, you know, gasoline from the federal supply. But the fact is that, that you know, this is a kind of almost like a, uh, a shot in the dark because, you know, demand as a whole is far greater than the U.S. Uh, the U.S. storage, the U.S. reserves, and it didn't have a very strong effect, uh, if, if any effect at all. Uh, for one thing, that supply does have to be replaced. In other words, once they get it out of the, out of the reserve, they do have to replace it at some point. And, um, um, you know, the, uh, it's a small amount compared to the total demand. Um, this week, we read that OPEC is finally starting to make noises about raising the um, uh, production of oil. And of course, they were content to just raise it slightly because prices were so high, they were you know, profiting from all of this uh, high prices. But the pressures that the major countries are putting on OPEC um, and the sort of profit they've already made uh, allow them to say, well, okay, we'll slowly increase supply. Now, you know, Mr. Biden and the head of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as he's called, never had a good relationship since uh, Mr. bin Salman killed uh, Mr. Khashoggi, who was an American citizen, um, murdered him in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul. And uh, um, Saudi, no, was the no, it wasn't the, the not the embassy, the consulate. So, sort of, uh, you know, the two countries have been on the outs because of that, uh, and now um, Biden realizes he has to engage with Saudi Arabia in order to uh, to raise production of oil because Saudi Arabia is, uh, you know, along with the U.S., the two largest uh, oil producers in the whole wide world. And you know, only raising production and dumping it out on the market will lower uh, the cost of that. And that, of course, lowering will pass through to every other good. Um, but this takes time. You can't snap your fingers and just say, okay, that's it, we're gonna pump out more oil. It's a lot harder than that. Um, uh, the other thing that's been done is many states in the US have cut, but not in Canada, of course, have cut their taxes, cut the state taxes on gasoline, which are very small anyway, but they've cut them in order to reduce the, the price at the pump. And um, you know, this means that the states will have less money in their coffers to provide services uh, or else they'll have to borrow money to uh, supply the services that they were supplying up until now. Um, the, uh, the, uh, uh, we talked about the increased price of grain and oil and things like that. You can't just increase the supply of, 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 of grain so easily. You know, you need the land, you need the fertilizer, which is expensive. You need the transportation, which is expensive. Um, you need the seeds, you need uh, all kinds of inputs which go into producing grain. 
And of course, land has already been taken up to grow things already. So it's not as if you can just, uh, you know, plant uh, grain in empty fields and, and hope for uh, increased supply. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't work, you know, quite, quite, quite in that way. Uh, and countries, uh, as I said, the poorest countries in the world are the ones who are going to suffer the most because they're the ones who, um, who, who, you know, use their money for food. And um, uh, if there's, you know, if the costs are higher, then they're going to be the ones the most affected. Um, uh, higher food prices in some countries always leads to political instability. So countries like Lebanon or Algeria or Egypt or Morocco, um, you know, are especially prone or Jordan are especially prone to uh, civilian unrest because of high uh, increases in, in food prices and bread prices, particularly. Um, the, you know, we have to, we can't go without mentioning the effects of COVID on, uh, or the, 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 the effects of COVID, on the relationship, I should say, between COVID and inflation, because COVID lowered um, uh, supply so much it lowered demand so much because people stayed home and weren't able to work and people did not travel and people did not buy and people you know, stopped weddings and people stopped traveling and tourism. And uh, so, my, so many of the gears of the economy slowed down because of COVID that when uh, the sort of uh, immediate threat of COVID disappeared, the jump in demand was so quick, it was quicker than, than, than the supply could be uh, ratcheted up to meet that demand. Um, we all heard, for example, of how ports were so, uh, and are still so overloaded uh, because there aren't enough trucks and there aren't enough drivers and there aren't enough workers in the ports to unload all the ships. And, <clears throat> and this in turn leads, of course, to higher costs uh, because again, uh, demand is greater than supply. Um, we know that uh, COVID has caused the slowdown in China, uh, but particularly they've, they've shut the, down the city of Shanghai. They've shut down their ports can, uh, uh, frequently because of COVID outbreaks. And, um, you know, this leads to shortages of goods and shortages of goods leads to higher prices. Something else leads to higher prices too, and that's the tariffs that uh, President Trump put on uh, Chinese goods and on um, many other countries' goods. And he did this um, supposedly to protect US jobs, but US jobs were never in danger. The unemployment rate in the US has been consistently low, um, you know, practically at a record low, in fact. And Trump's actions against China were just, just his own personal dislike of China and um, his viewing of China as a rival and his wish to weaken China. Uh, but when you put tariffs on a product, of course, it increased the prices at home. And uh, that's what happened. Uh, Mr. Biden right now is uh, at last, as far as I'm concerned, uh, far too late talking about removing tariffs because Tariffs are just a kind of an artificial barrier to trade. And uh, there's so many studies that show that they don't really increase uh, the amount of local jobs in any proportion to the amount of money which is being paid out uh, by consumers for a higher cost 
because of tariffs on imported goods. And so the talk about reducing tariffs is uh, certainly welcome and would certainly go a certain distance, not a long distance, by the way, but a certain distance in reducing the costs to the consumer at the end. Um, sometimes it's a question of politics versus economics. And, uh, you know, in the case of Mr. Trump, politics are always worn out. Um, um, in general, I'll just say this, that in general, uh, the, price, the fact that prices go up almost always leads to an increased supply because when prices go up, people want to benefit from it. They wanna make more. Uh, so they will then increase supply as the OPEC is talking about in the case of oil. Um, certainly in the case of grain, Canadian farmers, Brazilian farmers, Argentinian farmers are all looking towards their sort of lost and forgotten corners of their fields to plant more products. Um, in terms of fertilizer, um, Canada has one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest uh, fertilizer company called Nutrien. And they mine phosphate in Saskatchewan. And they already said that they can increase production and they are, 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 they are already increasing production. So uh, there is a natural sort of way that things will end up balancing out, uh, but it takes time. And it's not something that can be done overnight. That's the point I wanted to make. Um, uh, you, uh, you, to ramp up production, you need sometimes new factories, new machinery, new inputs. In agriculture, you know, you need planning and water, fertilizers, transportation, seeds, etc. You know, the high demand for cars uh, has come. Uh, but bottlenecks and, and supplies of uh, chips, computer chips and labor have all slowed things down and the ports I already uh, spoke about. So um, uh, Biden, you, you might remember, ordered that the U.S. ports be open 24 hours a day. But if there aren't enough drivers to take the containers out of the ports, then um, there's no use uh, being open if you can't uh, get the containers out of the ports. So, um, uh, like I said, eventually things do balance themselves out, but it takes time. Um, uh, and expectations are something that's important. So, you know, the key sort of battle for governments is to get their citizens to believe that inflation is under control. And then it's kind of becomes a um, self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, workers won't demand higher wages if they think that prices are going to go down soon, but they will demand higher wages if they think prices are keeping on, are keeping on uh, going up. And U.S. Uh, uh, wage increases have so far uh, been at uh, pretty well um, record highs for the um, uh, last 10 years. Uh, but um, still, if you look at things on average, on average, um, prices have been going up faster than wages in, in, in North America. Uh, you know, obviously there's exceptions, especially places that have made jumps in the minimum wage where, where it's gone from, let's say, you know, uh, I don't know, $10 an hour to $12 an hour. Well, that's like a 20% increase, but prices have not gone up 20%. 
uh, I just would like to remind uh, everyone that in the United States, there's such a thing as a federal minimum wage and there's such a thing as a, as a state minimum wage, just sort of like we have a bit in Canada, the provincial minimum wage. Um, but in half of the states of the United States, they don't have a state minimum wage. And therefore the federal minimum wage is the actual minimum wage. The federal minimum wage has not been raised, at least uh, I haven't heard it being raised. Uh, um, you know, they're talking about it, but they haven't figured out how much to raise it to. That means it's still sitting at $7.25 an hour, which is like nothing. And there are half of the states, of course, all the Republican ones, uh, have left their minimum wage at $7.25 an hour, uh, which, of course, in this day and age, nobody is willing to work for. And that's why companies like Walmart or Target or huge employers, um, uh, Amazon, uh, have raised their minimum wage, uh, which used to be somewhere around $10, $9, $10 an hour to $12 to $15 an hour. And uh, there are calls by the sort of left wing in the US uh, to make a federal minimum wage of $15 an hour. But so far, they don't have the support to be able to do that yet. Uh, Canadian minimum wages have gone up, uh, were never that low, and they have been going up steadily. And, um, you know, there's a much more, a better balance, let's call it like that in Canada than in the US between uh, uh, wages uh, uh, and, uh, and um, the cost of living. Um, the other thing that uh, uh, one can do to sort of reduce wages or let's say to hold them in place is to import more workers from abroad. Uh, the example of the UK is really quite extraordinary. When, when the UK uh, left Europe in Brexit, uh, hundreds of thousands of workers went home because they didn't have the uh, right to uh, get permanent residence in Great Britain. And so that led to shortages of workers in hotels and restaurants and agriculture, nursing homes and hospitals. And, um, you know, all these employers have been begging the UK government to reverse the policy and to allow workers to come in, you know, not on temporary contracts, because a lot of workers don't want that, but to allow them to come in on permanent, um, on a permanent basis. And so far, the government has not uh, done that. And uh, I believe part of the reason for that is that they don't want to admit that they made a mistake uh, by getting out of Europe in the first place. So, you know, Brexit was Mr. Johnson's uh, sort of uh, main uh, political uh, idea. And by now, I think everyone in Great Britain does realize that this was a big mistake. I mean, everyone except the diehards. And uh, of course the government never wants to admit they made a mistake. And so by opening up the UK to mass immigration, would be the equivalent of, of saying, well, we, we made a big mistake because the whole reason for going on Brexit in the first place was to prevent uh, sort of mass and uncontrolled immigration from the rest of Europe, which uh, they had the right to come in to Great Britain because Great Britain was part of the European Union. So I'm going to, um, uh, you know, end this discussion sort of at this uh, juncture. Um, uh, let me see if you've got any comments or questions. And then I just wanted to speak 
just a little bit about the places I visited and in particular, the, the fate of the Jewish community. Well, you know what, maybe I'll do that and then we'll do questions afterwards. So how about that? So uh, among the places that I visited on my uh, trip to Europe were, were in Greece, the um, islands of Rhodes and Crete. Both these islands are in the Mediterranean. They're both not, of course, attached to mainland Greece, but they have been part of Greece um, uh, in many, uh, well, let's say in ancient times, they were part of the Greek, uh, ancient Greek empire. Uh, they both traveled through all the different uh, rulers that have ruled um, that part of the world after um, the collapse of, Greek, of the Roman empire. Um, so that would be the Byzantines, it would be the, um, the Venetians, it would be the Ottomans. Uh, in the case of uh, Rhodes, it was the Italians uh, that uh, took over in the 20th century. Um, and um, uh, Jewish people have been living on those islands, of course, since uh, 2000 BC, since the Roman Empire got itself established and even before then. Um, when the Spanish Inquisition happened uh, and the expulsion of Jews from Spain, uh, by that time already, the 1500s, it was the Ottomans who were ruling both, uh, both islands and uh, they welcomed the Jews to come live there. And so the native Greek speaking Jews were, were, uh, were supplemented by the Spanish speaking Jews who came to live there uh, after 1500. And for a couple of hundred years then, their lives were good and, and things were going well. But by the 1800s, uh, Turkey itself, the Ottoman Empire was in decline. And uh, many, many Jews left these islands and left the Ottoman Empire altogether to go live in South America, to go live in North America, to go live in Western Europe, like France, uh, Great Britain. And it's interesting that in the case of Rhodes, uh, many of them made their way to Africa of all places. Uh, I'd say to Rhodesia, which is a funny thing. In other words, Rhodes, people from Rhodes going to Rhodesia, but they did. And as well, they went to the Congo and they opened up businesses there and they lived there, uh, you know, sort of under European, uh, when these countries were under European rule, they were living there and doing well. Um, by the time the, um, uh, in, in the, um, after, after the end of the First World War, uh, Rhodes passed from Italian rule to Greek rule. And Crete, of course, was always under Greek rule uh, since uh, the late 1800s. Um, but uh, the number of Jews uh, were declining, uh, you know, uh, even in the 20th century. But, um, um, oh, no, I would say, that, no, so um, when uh, the Second World War broke out, Italy was still in control of Rhodes and um, uh, the Jews uh, were uh, sort of under Italian rule really for 20 something odd years. And they were getting used to changing, you know, their language to Italian and to uh, living under sort of Italy. And uh, then Mussolini passed these uh, racial laws, you know, copying the German laws. And, uh, you know, many Jews left at that point. 
But uh, in 1943, when, it, when Italy um, uh, changed sides, uh, the Germans then came in to, um, to both uh, Crete and to um, Rhodes and immediately started rounding up the Jews. And in the case of Rhodes, it was right the farthest place away, in a sense, from the center of Greece. And the Jews were, uh, there were about 1,700 of them <clears throat> who were rounded up by and sent on a ship to different islands uh, to make their way to Athens. And then from Athens, they were sent to, unfortunately, to Bergen-Belsen and to Auschwitz. And so, uh, out of 1,700 Jews uh, in Rhodes, only 150 survived. Um, in Crete, uh, the same process happened, except that when the Jews were shipped on a ship uh, from Crete to Athens, uh, the British uh, Navy happened to blow up the ship, uh, thinking it was some, you know, it was a German ship, and all the people on the ship died. So these, both these communities were completely wiped out as a result of the um, Nazi uh, uh, war machine. And, um, you know, just a handful of survivors were there to try to rebuild the communities after the war. And uh, they left, uh, you know, two beautiful synagogues, um, uh, one of which took one direction and the other took a different direction. So one, the synagogue and roads was left in the hands of the few community members who were there who were Orthodox. And uh, yet there are not enough uh, Orthodox people there to make a minion. And so uh, the, the synagogue could barely be used. Whereas the one in Crete um, was, let, was rebuilt by a, um, uh, a part Jew who decided to open the synagogue to anybody in the community, to any kind of Jewish person of interest um, and even to general community members at large. And so the community, the, the synagogue serves as a community center, as a synagogue, um, uh, as an art uh, studio and things like that. Uh, when I was there, there was a bat mitzvah going on in Rhodes uh, from a great granddaughter of one of the original community members. And she brought her whole family there, like 40, 50 people uh, all to celebrate her bat mitzvah in um, the synagogue of her ancestors. So uh, it was really kind of in interesting to see these things. I just would like to end up by saying that uh, according to all kinds of surveys, Greece is the most anti-Semitic country in Europe. That means that the people in Greece have the most anti-Jewish feelings of anywhere in Europe. And uh, when I asked, um, I asked the... Uh, there was a rabbi there when I went to the synagogue. I said, well, why is this? And he said, she said, it was a she, because uh, this was the other one, the, the liberal synagogue. She said that, look, um, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church never underwent a series of reforms like they did in the Catholic world or the, uh, which passed the Second Vatican uh, uh, Council, you know, uh, taking away the blame of Jews for killing Christ. And of course, the Protestants had their reformation as well, but there was never a reformation in the Greek Orthodox Church. And the Greek Orthodox Church is also very tied to the identity of the Greek people as a whole. So in other words, like if you're not a Greek Orthodox person, you're not a real Greek. And so anybody who is outside of that world is in a sense considered to be an outsider. And that's how the Jews are, are regarded there. 
But like they, they repeated to me, they said, you know, that the people might have anti-Semitic ideas, but they don't act on them. So there, there hasn't been really any violence or threats to the community as there have been to, um, you know, the, of course, Jews in France and, and elsewhere in the whole wide world. Um, in fact, one of the largest cities in Greece has a Jewish mayor, Yanina, uh, the city of Yanina. And this Jewish mayor says, look, I've never experienced anti-Semitism. And, uh, you know, it's not something which uh, affects the lives of the Greek Jews as a whole. Of course, there aren't very many of them left. So the community was almost completely wiped out in the Second World War, especially the community of Salonika, which was called the Jerusalem of Europe uh, back in the 1800s when more than half of the people there were, were Jewish. And 95% and of them were sent on trains to Auschwitz when, when the Germans arrived. So that's um, what I wanted to tell you. It's my pleasure to be back with you all. And I, you know, I'd like to be there, of course, in person and see your faces, but as it is, um, we're managing to do what we can do. And I'm so happy that you tuned in to, uh, to hear uh, you know, what I have to say about current events. Lots more things have been going on in the world, which of course I didn't speak about in those shootings in schools and and all kinds of other, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of other topics, elections here and there, but we'll get to all of them uh, in due course. So uh, any comments or questions that you have for me um, on this, any of the subjects I spoke about, take your time, think about them and uh, speak to uh, Angela, um, uh, Angela and she will, um, you know, Make, put you in contact with me. So thanks again for listening and I'm waiting for your comments and questions. So I don't see anything yet, Mr. Dwaskin, but I would just like to mention that we, I just put up a, a chat on the survey. Mm -hmm. uh, I put a, a, a survey in the chat and it's for in-person uh, events. We would like, we'd just like to know if people are interested to come uh, in person for certain events. Uh, they just need to fill out the survey that I put in the chat. Okay, that's good. I mean, I know, I do speak, um, you know, I speak in other uh, venues and um, I have gone in person to some of the places that I, that I used to teach in before COVID. And, um, you know, if, if Coach St. Luke is happy to do it that way, so am I. So it all depends on, you know, what the feeling is. And, um, you know, I think uh, that we've all come to understand that COVID is a kind of a fact of life. And um, it certainly is not the, um, to the vast majority of people, it's not the uh, life-threatening disease uh, that it was at the beginning. And so, so, you know, people are a bit more relaxed about it. The mask mandates are gone and uh, people are coming back to living a kind of a, a more regular life. And that includes going in person to shows and plays and movies and restaurants and everything else. So if things work out that way, it's fine with me. So Linda uh, is, uh, she wrote, great to have you back. Oh, that's nice. 
great to be back. I just am curious if other people have had the sort of shock, sticker shock, you know, sticker shock from seeing how fast some things have gone up in price compared to what they used to be. Um, uh, one of the things we like to buy in Costco is uh, the salmon um, in sort of a nice a big piece of it. And it's gone up from about $8 a pound to somewhere like $12.5 a pound. I mean, and that's it. That's not the 7% increase that the statisticians are saying that our cost of living has gone up by. So certain things have really gone up far more than 7%. Um, and they may be reflected in future uh, inflation measures. But, uh, you know, for people who are used to paying one price for something to see it jump so fast, it's, it is a bit of a shock. And for people who's lie, who really are living uh, sort of... Um, uh, paycheck to paycheck, uh, this has really affected their lives and the stress that uh, gets added on to this uh, is really um, is really serious and, uh, you know, in some cases very life-changing. And it's no wonder that politicians are scrambling to try to fix the problem. And, and, and by the way, you know, just to give you some, some bit of an idea of the comparison of costs, uh, let's say in Italy to costs here, uh, for many, many things, prices are the same in euros as they are in dollars. In other words, so uh, it costs just about the same um, uh, in euros as in dollars, meaning that the actual costs are maybe something like 40% higher in say Italy than they are here for similar for similar things. It's not the case for everything, but uh, certainly uh, you know to get a plate of pasta in a restaurant in Italy would be about fourteen euros, and um, you know that comes sort of like fourteen dollars here would be about the same. And you know there when you buy things, the taxes are all included. They also have GSTs of around fifteen to seventeen percent but they're already incorporated in the price. So you don't pay for them uh, on top of what you buy. I don't see anything, uh, Mr. Doskin. Nobody's uh, raised their hands or anything. Um, okay, well, look, uh, Angela, I want to thank you. Uh, first of all, it's my pleasure to be back with you again, and I'm happy to hear your voice, um, you know, moderating and, 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 you know, looking after problems and taking questions and things like that. So it's great to work with you again. And I want to thank everybody for remembering to come back to our podcast. And I hope uh, you'll all tune in next week. And um, I'll see you again. So Thank you very much. And, um, you know, don't be afraid to come up with questions, comments, and anything else like that. Or if you've got any favorite subject you'd like to hear about, just let me know and I'll be glad to do it for you. So thanks again to everybody and thanks to um, Angela. And uh, I'll see you next week. Thank you to everyone uh, listening in through the telephone and online. Uh, I'd just like to remind everyone, Mr. Hershey, 
Ruskin will be um, on Tuesday, every Tuesday until the end of August. Um, so thank you very much for listening in and have a great rest of your day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.